doing that, I was face to face with it. It was holding me by my throat. And it felt like it was sucking something out of me. I probably should have been more scared than I was when I witnessed the exorcism. I turned and looked on my right side. When I did, there's, there's a beam on the side of the tree, a large beam. It's looking at me and I'm looking at it. After I hit the lock button and looked back up, I saw red eyes staring back at me. That they're going to show multiple gods all over the earth, be able to speak in people's languages. And at that point, it kind of converge into this one entity, which will be revealed as extraterrestrial. You'll realize that aliens are the gods of old. And at that point, it'll like religion out of the context of humanity. No, it couldn't have been a person. I know that. I know that people can't run through the woods like that. So this thing comes into view, and I see it. It's 50 yards away from me. It's walking. It's walking on two legs. It's huge. This is a big, hairy looking being. Welcome. I'm your host. And this is uncomfortable. Welcome back to the show. I am your host, Eric Salagi. If you've had an uncomfortable experience and you'd like to have it featured on the show, please get a hold of me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, both at Uncomfortable Podcast 65. And most importantly, please share the show with others and make sure to leave us a five-star rating and review where you can. This is the main way that you can help in getting the show out in front of other people. And with more people listening, that means more great stories coming for you like tonight. There are a couple of events coming up that I'm going to be a part of. I want to run over these real quick. First, the second annual Bigfoot and Brews held in Dwajak, Michigan this September 9th. This year, Robert Kreider from New Mexico and Mr. Stacy Brown Jr. from Florida will be the main speakers for the day. Tickets are available now. Seating is limited, so if you're interested, I would suggest picking those up as soon as possible. Um, also, the Friday night before at the same venue, we are going to be holding a VIP dinner. And during that dinner, you will be able to spend time with both of the speakers, myself, and after the dinner, we are going to have a screening of Stacy Brown's latest installment of the Skunk Ape Experiment. So, both gentlemen will be on hand for the dinner, and then afterwards, we're going to view the four episodes, I think they're 30 minutes apiece, and that's off his newest project that's not released yet. Tickets are on sale now. I'm looking for vendors, so if you're interested, please check out the vendor ticket on the Eventbrite link in the show notes below this episode. Also, if you're interested in helping sponsor the event, please contact me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. Just about a month later in October, on the 6th, 7th, and 8th, that whole weekend, you'll be able to join myself, Justin and Jay from the Cryptids of the Corn, Steve and Kyle from the Hollow Sky Podcast, Chris and Joel from a Kill a, To Kill a Mockingbird Podcast, Ryan, Justin, and Lance from the Appalachian Intelligence Podcast, and Bo Kennedy from the Bump Podcast, all at the first 40 and Airwaves Podcast Conference. Ladies and gentlemen, 50 bucks is the cost of this ticket per person. 
That gets you access to all of us all three days. Starting the evening of the 6th, we're going to have a Friday night meet and greet with an impromptu panel in the courtyard at the Inn in Ada, Ohio. Starting bright and early Saturday morning, you will have access to all of the show's vendor tables where you can pick up your t-shirts, stickers, other merch from your favorite podcast. And that whole day will be filled with each of these podcasts taking the stage to do their thing for about an hour with Q&As. The host, the MC for the day, is going to be the lovely JJ Rose 777. So that's an exciting addition to our lineup as well. Then Sunday morning, just down the road, we're going to head over before you get on the road to take off for home, and we're going to provide you with a pancake and coffee breakfast, uh, just a way for us to say thank you for spending your weekend with us. Again, that's 50 bucks. That gets you a mission to all three days. There will be a link tree in the show notes below. It has all the information there for the conference center, the special pricing for rooms, as well as alternative lodging options. This is a one-of-a-kind opportunity for you, the listeners, to hang out with us and just get weird all weekend. If you've not heard yet, Uncomfortable Patreon has launched, and I am very excited about it. It's the only place you'll be able to view my video series, Uncomfortable Afterthoughts, and a little uncomfortable. Go to patreon.com slash uncomfortablepodcast770 and see if any of the tiers there interest you. Your support for the show has been amazing, and hopefully this is a nice way for me to give back. The link tree for the Patreon, the link, I'm sorry, the link for the Patreon and the Uncomfortable Discord will be in the show notes below as well. As for tonight's guest, Mr. Charles Stevens joins us from British Columbia, and Charles has some, uh, he's got some Bigfoot experience that he's going to share with us. But then he's going to talk about some things that it is it has led him on the path in a somewhat unique field to try and discover a, a an unusual method of communication between these things. If you're ready for it, let's get into it. If you will, please give a warm, uncomfortable welcome to Charles Stevens. Charles, welcome to Uncomfortable. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Sorry about that long intro, but got to take care of paying the bills. So, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, you joined the Discord here not too long ago, and uh, for that, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure having you with us. And um, I, I came across a post that you made. And it struck me, and uh, I saw a couple of people who had responded to you, and I contacted them, kind of asked what they knew about you. And um, it's pretty interesting stuff. So before we get into all of that, you've had some experiences, and, and I assume that that's kind of what kind of put you on the path of trying to decipher the code of, of trying to find these things or make, find out what makes them tick, what makes them do the things they do 
and how they do the things they do. So if you will, let's get into it, man. Right. So uh, my experience started, uh, I was in a hunting area that me and my dad hunt. And this is a very steep hillside that benches off a couple times. So uh, the plateau starts off in a cut block, goes down the hill in heavily wooded area. And along each of the top of these benches is a whitetail deer trail. And my goal was to go down there in the off season and set up a trail camera and see what kind of deer we're moving through. So I knew bears can smell the batteries and trail cameras. So I put this trail camera rather high in the tree, about seven and a half feet up. And I put a wedge behind it to angle it down towards the ground. You know, that way I can actually see what's moving along the trail. And I left it out there for about a month or so. And I came back to get it and it was gone. The strap was still hanging on the bark of the tree, but the buckle had been completely snapped. And so I started getting angry thinking someone stole my trail camera. And I did a search pattern circling out away from the tree. Uh, and... About 20 yards away, there was a fallen over tree. And right beside this tree, there was my trail camera. But the latches to get into the case of the camera had been unlatched, and it was sitting facing the sky. And I noticed right away there was no teeth or claw marks, and my ST guard was still there, so I didn't really think it was a human that did this, but it didn't really seem like an animal did it either. So, you know, that kind of raised my suspicions that maybe, you know, joked with my friend that was with me, what if this was a Bigfoot? So and, let me let me jump in here real quick. Now, you're in British Columbia. Um, I know that can be a, a rather um, wilderness area. And what what type of I'm, I'm, I know you have bear up there, but typically what are you seeing when it when it comes to bear? You know what? What's most, a most black bear? Black bear, and what's the what's the average size, height wise, uh, weight wise, uh, when they're standing on their hind legs? How tall are they? Could oh, they I mean, could they, they have get, reached? They get to be about like six feet standing on their hinds. Um, you know, it, it's a risky run running a trail camera out around here. There's lots of bears. I get them on trail camera all the time. But uh, I've never had one mess with the camera like that. So when you retrieve the uh, when you retrieve the SD card out of that, were were there any photographs that were had snapped because of the motion of the camera being taken from the tree? There was, but there was only a tuft of hair in the corner of the lens, like as if an arm had reached around from behind the tree grabbed the case and pulled it forward. So there was four anomalous shots and then the rest of the shots were of sky. So it didn't really capture anything substantial, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, but it's interesting, you know, you say if you, if you looked at it and you, you examined it well and there's no, no overt signs of claw marks or teeth marks, um, yet it was open that that's somewhat telling in itself yeah yeah i mean you need fingers to get into that there's just no way around it i mean if you tried to 
break your way into it without doing the latches first, you're just going to snap the case. Is that a is that a commonly known area for hunting? Is that some place that you throughout the years you've had to contend with other hunters being in that area? Um, I mean, I guess the point I'm making is anytime there is a possibility that human is involved, you almost have to you almost have to go to that in the absence of any other kind of evidence, right? True. But, you know, humans are inherently lazy and this hillside is very difficult to get down. And the the drags that I've had to help my dad with have been hell. Brutal pulls up that hill. Yeah. Um, now, at the base of this hillside, there's a lake down there that has a provincial campground that's not really maintained. And me and my friends like to camp down there. And one time we were out there, uh, everyone was around the campfire at night. And me and one of my other friends wanted to go spearfishing for some carp down in the lake using our flashlights and some homemade spears. And so there's a creek inlet that runs off that same hillside and runs into the lake now while we're out there they're just the two of us uh we heard some very aggressive growling coming from that creek uh it kind of sounded like a wild boar but we don't have wild boar around this area so it was an anomalous sound it didn't sound like anything else we have heard um, it gave us a heebie-jeebies and both of us just kind of looked at each other and were like, well, yeah, let's go back to the fire and get out. <laughs> um, but that's that same hillside. Oh, okay. Uh, so I heard on Sasquatch Chronicles, someone described Sasquatch growls the exact same way, saying it sounded like a wild boar. So it's only in retrospect that I put that piece of the puzzle together. You know, it might not have been, but yeah. it raised my suspicions. Was, there, then, was uh, there anything Was there anything else about that area that, you know, throughout the times? How, how long have you hunted that, that area? Okay, so in that, has there ever been anything that you or your dad or you and your buddies, you know, at, while you were out there, just... Anything that seems out of place, anything that you've ever come across that you're like, how the hell did that get there? Or, you know, that, that looks, that doesn't look like natural tree fall or anything, anything in that area that would make you question. Last year, I ordered a new rifle scope for my gun and it got to me rather late. And so I had to go sight my rifle in, in October and I wasn't working Fridays at the time. So I went out on a Friday morning and I waited until about 11 o'clock to give anybody that might be hunting out there a fair chance before I start shooting. And so I go to a secluded hillside, set up my target about midway. So I know the, the backdrop where my bullets going and you know, this is about a 200-yard stone throw away from where that trail camera was. And as I'm sighting in my rifle, I shot about 
12 rounds through my 30-06, there was a cedar tree on the top of the hill that started to violently shake. Like, really? whipping, back, whipping back and forth. And, you know, even though I had a gun in my hand, I did not feel comfortable going to the top of the hill and seeing what was doing that. Were you able to see the top of that tree? Yes. Okay. It was not windy. It was not windy that day. And, you know, it, it, I don't see it making sense for an animal to do that. Um, I Can left you- that day after shooting like twice more. But I went back this spring to take uh, pictures of that tree. I got curious. I wanted to see what the base of that tree looked like and what was around there. So I went back this spring and I got some good photos of that tree. And while I was there, just north of it, there's a moose bed in some rotten wood. So kind of that broken up tree substrate. And in this moose bed, I found a 14-inch Sasquatch track, barefoot, really. But since the material was so bad, I couldn't possibly cast it. Did you take pictures of it? I tried to. They didn't turn out very well because of the substrate. Yeah. But it was rather, uh, I found it encouraging to actually find that track rate by that tree. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so here's a, can you give a, can you give an estimate? What do you think the the base of that tree was at, at say the five or six feet above the the ground? How, how big a diameter? Uh, It's about a six to eight inch diameter tree. So not super big, but it's still pretty sturdy. Right. So if I was to try to shake that tree, I couldn't have moved it the way it was moving. I mean, it was definitely an intimidation display. It didn't like me there. But, I mean, I was wearing hearing protection at the time, so there's, if it was screaming at me, I wouldn't have been able to hear it. Yeah. That's interesting. Was, was the tree in pretty clear sight of you? Yes. And yet you were not able to see anything... So at the base of this tree, there's other saplings that, you know, go just above uh, six and a half feet. And they're they're rather bushy. So even if I did crest that hill, I wouldn't have been able to see it uh, standing at the base of that tree. So, I mean, it had the perfect camouflage, really. That's interesting. Um, That, that That would be a little on the scary side for me. It was a little scary because, like, when you're shooting a gun, nothing really comes into you while you're shooting. Usually it's the opposite. They run away. Mm -hmm. Um, The other experience I've had with Sasquatch, uh, I was camping on another mountain range. So, like, a mountain range across the valley from where this all happened on the backside of it. And we were up in some subalpine lakes, two side by side, and they're separated by a little path through a swamp about 200 yards away from each other. There's a little ranger cabin set up at one of them. And there's a gravel parking lot where you can park your trucks. So we had been out there for a couple days, 
and we were being really loud, uh, playing music all day long. Uh, we had a potato cannon that we were shooting potatoes across the lake. Uh, I think we even shot a tiki torch into a tree trunk. <laughs> um, so the scene there is we weren't being quiet. And I think on the second or third night, I wanted to call owls during the dusk. So I got everyone to quiet down for a minute and I started doing a great horned owl call. And I got a response right away. And so I, I call again and I get a, a reply. And then I got another owl from close to that location pipe up as well. And then one on the far end of the lake. And then another on the other side of the lake. And then two or three from that second lake I told you about. So all in all, there was about 12 owls calling all at one time. Which seems anomalous and then that first one that i was talking to got really excited and kind of broke down into this chimpanzee like chatter mixed with a kookaburra so if you can picture that just that really excited chatter and you know i just thought it was a stupid owl at the time i, I hadn't known at that point that Sasquatch mimic owls quite often. Um, again, it's only in retrospect, looking back at it, that you realize, hey, something was going on there. I had I had an experience. I've talked about it several times on the show, up in the Huron Manistee National Forest, and I was on a kayak trip with two other guys, and we were sitting around at the end of the day. It was getting late. It was around 10 o'clock. We had a fire going. We were sitting around the campfire having some beers. And all of a sudden, we start hearing this owl directly across the river from us. And then there was one that was uh, considerably further behind us. And then there was one that was considerably further up the river from us. And it continued to repeat in this specific pattern. It was always the one across the lake then the one behind us, then the one ahead of us. And it kept doing it over and over and over and over again. And uh, according to my buddy, I guess barred owls are, are the, the type owl that are native to that area. And the sound that owl made was more of a, ah, ah. And, you know, it, and it just didn't sound right. In fact, the first guy um, that was facing me, he's the one that first brought it up saying, man, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> you know, that sounds like somebody out there trying to sound like an owl, but all three of them sounded the same. They were just at different volumes because they were at different distance, distances away from us. Um, but it was, it was unusual. And there were a number of other things that happened that night that lead me to believe that it wasn't an owl. <laughs> uh, same with my situation. About 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, most everyone had gone to bed that night. And there was about four of us left around the campfire, just having little heart-to-hearts around the fire, still listening to music. And from behind us, 
we could hear running on that gravel parking lot coming right at us and this really guttural growl just like really quickly like by the time we had turned around we couldn't see anything um what do you guess what do you guess the distance was to you 20 yards really it wasn't that far um we talked to everyone in the morning about it saying, you know, we had this, uh, deranged coyote in the camp run across the parking lot. I mean, we went out and looked with flashlights even, we couldn't see anything. Uh, but they, the people in the tents all reported that something had been dragging along the side of their tent. When so, you, when you say you heard something run at you, that, that makes it sound like you were hearing the, the footsteps, the footfalls as they were yeah, coming you to hear, you. So you could hear the shuffle of the gravel. Yeah, you could. Yeah. It was uh, rather intimidating, but again, we just thought it was some deranged coyote or something. <laughs> but you know, once you start putting those pieces together, of what happened earlier in the night and then what happened there mm-hmm. and all the activity we had been doing in the area, Uh, I think we had maybe ticked off a family group and that was probably the alpha saying, you know, quiet down or get out of here. Um, when we were at the, the ranger cabinets over there, we were looking at the log book and some people said that they had stuff circling their camps at night. So that, that also seemed a little bit weird. It's it's funny because my son uh, my son had an experience. He never saw it, so you know he's not willing to say it was a Sasquatch. But he saw eye shine in the evening. He got the the side of their a frame that they were running uh, slapped or hit by something that shook the uh, the side of the the a frame and jiggled the the paintings that were on the wall. Uh, also made the dogs go bonkers um but log books you know like visitor books those things are those things are they tell a tale because in that a-frame there was a guest book and as they were having these experiences the girl he was with started reading through the um the the guest book and uh, a few months earlier in the summer there's a entry that said, really enjoyed our time here, blah, 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 blah. Sasquatch made his presence known. We didn't get to see him, but we knew he was here. And, you know, a couple of pages before that, they were talking about unusual lights that were dancing around over the, the tippy dam. So, um, you know, people, people want to tell their stories. Um, so they write stuff down. You know, and, and what, what better way to do it than anonymously in a exactly. cabin logbook? Yeah. <laughs> um, to your point about eye shine, um, after I had really gotten, you know, I've always loved the, the subject of Sasquatch, but I, I kind of grew out of it for a little while, and then I came back into it. And when I came back into it, it's just been like an obsession. And you often hear eye shine and eye glow referred to as the woo, right? That's not supposed to happen. I, I mean, 
Eyeshine, no. Eyeshine is is very much yeah, but a, not but, in a prime. But the glow, when they start describing it as a as a glow, especially in the red spectrum of light, yeah, yeah. people tend to dismiss that and put it in with the woo. Now, I tried to think of this in a way that that would make sense. Um, and I have done some other studies on existing animals, uh, such as owls and other nocturnal animals. And when you put them in the ultraviolet spectrum of color, uh, they glow. They light up in all kinds of different colors that they normally are not to our eyesight. Uh, take a flying squirrel, for instance. Uh, they're very mundane looking to us. They're just brown or black. And they only come out at night, so they're very nocturnal. And when you hit them with UV, they turn orange and pink and blue. Really? Like, just crazy wild colors. And they use the UV spectrum to see at night in low light conditions. So I got thinking, you know, maybe Sasquatch does the same kind of thing. It's often reported to be mostly nocturnal. So why wouldn't they see like that? And so I delved into it a little deeper. And there's many, many species of animals that will glow in UV. Uh, okay, so UV, ultraviolet. Um, correct. Is that anything like... Uh, like when we were younger, uh, you go to Spencer's Gifts and you'd buy a black light for a black light poster that would glow. Uh... This is a little more sophisticated. Okay. Uh, different way, different wavelength. This is more along the lines of the black lights that uh, forensics will use. Okay. Um, so it really, it, it's not so much the purple. It really lights things up yeah. the way there's seen um owls have a very unique way of communicating with each other so if i take an owl from my town and you stretch out its wing feathers and you light it up with the uv certain bands of those flight feathers will fluoresce under the ultraviolet now if you take another owl from another region same species and you stretch out its wings and look at the same flight feathers they're going to fluoresce in a different pattern and that helps them identify where they come from and you know uh predatory birds like that migrate every winter so they got to come back to their same region so it helps them identify who's who and where they go okay so when you say you spread their wings out and these bands become apparent is it is it something that's only happening like on the underneath of the wings or is is it on the outside of the of the bird as well a little bit on the outside but mostly on the inside on the inside yeah so it's something they see during flight um i'm a little bit of a rock hound as well and the uv subject got brought up in some of the rock hounding and there's certain rocks called euperlites that really caught my attention yeah. and i mean you probably have them around the great lakes there yep uh, middle of the middle of the state on up yeah right and if you hit these things with 
ultraviolet. They glow like a burning ember out of a fire. They're amazing. They look fantastic. Uh, some people even get the big ones and turn them into cosmic bowling balls. Now, where this gets involved with Sasquatch is I think that when they see these rocks, those are the rocks that get gifted to people at gifting sites. They're, they'd be culturally significant to the Sasquatch. If this is true, I can't prove that yet. But if it's true, it takes what we see as a mundane rock, because it looks like any other granite, and makes it amazing. Really bright, orange. Uh, I mean, even the small ones. I went out to the river last weekend, and I got just a bucket full of river rock, brought it back at night, and I took my UV flashlight, and, you know, a handful of the rocks will light up. And I got some that are so bright red, it's amazing. Do, now, now after, you, after you remove the light source from them, do they continue to glow, or is, is it necessary to have that light source on them to get them to do it? It's necessary to have the light source on them, yeah. But, you know, you often hear about Sasquatch throwing rocks at people. Mm -hmm. Now, if you can imagine having one of these little pebble-sized ones that are glowing bright red, and you throw it at someone, that's going to look like a tracer bullet to them, if that's how they see it. You know? Okay, being a rock hound, uh, my son's a geologist. So right. uh, he's, he's kind of in the same kind of... <laughs> <clears throat> kind of in the same boat with you. Um, as far as the Uperlite rocks themselves, are they um, are they geographically locked into a specific area, or are they? Could I find them down here in northern Indiana? Are they all over the place? Did they just become Uperlites because they were found in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan a long time ago? I'm not really sure about the Uperlites. I think the ones that I am finding right now are called Glowadites, which is kind of a dumb name, but uh, many other gemstones will also fluoresce in their own different colors. Uh, I have a rough cut ruby that will fluoresce in a totally different pattern. I got you. Um, I got some agates here that will, will glow almost like a neon green along with the the orange and the red and some of them even go like a violet purple blue um so you're theorizing that you know people who put out uh, a handful of uh, highly polished colorful marbles as a gift um and they get these just mundane ugly ass rocks in return um that they, along, along with feathers that they may be missing the point and how, how how economical is it to purchase a UV um, producing light? I mean, can you just... 50, 80 bucks, it's not that bad. So if you are in a situation where you're gifting with what you think to be a Sasquatch, it might be worth buying one of those and and spreading a little bit of light on, on what you're being gifted to see if they're interesting. Yeah, so if it's culturally significant to them, that would definitely show up. And I mean, you could even do an experiment where you take, say, three or four rocks, you got your control, you got the rocks that won't fluoresce, and then you throw in one 
that will fluoresce. And you leave that at your gift site. And if they take that just the one that glows, that would show significance. And if you can repeat that experiment, you know, that's a scientific experiment that could be put into action very easily. Okay, so here's my question for you. For us, in order to view something that fluoresces, we have to hit it with ultraviolet light. An owl or a flying squirrel or any other natural inhabitants to this world, those things don't need the addition of fluorescent light to to be able to see it. They should natively be able to see like that. Uh, I think it might also be in combination with uh, infrared even. Uh, that would also help you in low light conditions. I mean, we use the infrared for our night cams, mm. but I mean, what if they just have that natively built into their vision? I mean, until we get one, we can't really prove that, but it's something to keep in mind and look at. Uh, I think it's very important. Uh, listening to people like Doug Hycheck, producer of Monster Quest, He's done some nature documentaries, separate from Sasquatch, but I think very significant. He's said that bears and caribou can see in the UV spectrum, and they use this to look at the fluorescence of plant matter, and it will show the protein and sugar contents of the plants that they're eating. So if you've ever watched a bear eat, they'll go from one plant and then walk 20 yards and then eat the next plant, right? Instead of grazing around the one area. Now, what they're seeing is the most bang for their buck food. They're not wasting their energy grazing on plants that aren't full of the nutrients that they need to really pack on that winter fat. So I also think Sasquatch will do the same thing as a big omnivore. Um, they'll be able to see this uh, fluorescence in the plants and only eat the stuff that would, would give them the energy they need. Are there any, to your knowledge, are there any other game animals, what we would perceive to be game animals, that fluoresce under UV light? Do, say, deer? Uh, I don't know yet if deer would. Um, probably the white hairs on them would, for sure. That would show a blip really bright so a white tail if it's got its flag up that would fluoresce easy so, um, so potentially if potentially. Sasquatch, if sasquatch is seen in the uv spectrum they'd stick out like a sore thumb which would make night hunting pretty really beneficial pretty beneficial yeah yeah interesting um when you're looking at the plants in the forest too, the colors just really pop in all kinds of weird, different ways. Um, I went out and did some nighttime investigations around just regular farm plants around here. And corn will come up as blue. Same with grass. So kind of gives a new meaning to the bluegrass. Um, 
and then looking at alfalfa, they, you know, very green to our eyesight, but when you put it with the UV, it turns out very red in the center of the leaves. Um, so that would be showing you the nutritional value of that leaf. Uh, flowers do the same kind of thing, but more so for insects. Uh, if you look at a daisy and you hit it with UV, they'll have landing strips that we don't see down the flower petals going towards the pollen. So that's another way that uh, plants communicate with animals with, is with UV, something we don't see at all. Um, so it's like a, it's like a, a, a neon sign saying, hey, we're open. Exactly. Come eat. There's a whole there's a whole hidden world that we just don't see, and we're so caught up with the human condition that you know we don't think about it. But it's very real, and almost everything uses it. Um, take a a starling, for instance. What do you see when you see a starling? Just a normal bird. Yeah, black and with a yellow beak, right? Yeah. Um, you hit it with ultraviolet and a starling turns rainbow. It's got every color on it. Really? Yeah. It goes from the most mundane bird to pretty fantastic. I wonder if I Googled, uh, UV photography, if there would be examples of, uh, a bunch of this wildlife and, and natural stuff that has been photographed under UV light to, to show what you're, you're talking about. There there sure is. I mean, I posted a whole bunch of it to my Instagram. Um, What's your Instagram? Uh, Chucky underscore danger. And I've got some good examples of the stuff that I found personally. Uh, I mean, another good plant example is lichen or old man's beard. You know, when you look at it, it's that dull gray green. Doesn't really look like much sitting on every branch on a tree. Yeah. You hit it with the ultraviolet and it turns bright orange. It's almost like if you could, if you could see an ultraviolet without the use of the flashlight, it would be like you were in avatar world. Yeah. I almost wonder if any of the, any of the colors have any type of an association with, um, you know, like, like some frogs in the Amazon have very specific color patterns and those specific colors mean they're Danger. dangerous, you know? So I, I wonder if, you know, if, if, if there's any kind of correlation like that with what we're talking about, whether or not these animals are seeing things that, you know, because how would they know that something is okay to eat or not? Right. I mean, the, the science of UV in animals is so new that there's not a ton of information out there. Um, there's been a couple documentaries that get into the basics of it. There's uh, BBC's Night at, or Life at Night. And uh, David Attenborough does a good one of Life in Color that shows animals in all kinds of different color spectrums. Not just UV, but also in polarized and non-polarized light is also another significant way of communication. But as to Sasquatch specifically, I think it's mostly in the UV spectrum. Do you think 
do you think that they're just capable of possibly capable of seeing in that spectrum or do you think they themselves would fluoresce if they're if they're if they have the ability to see in that spectrum to me it would um, make sense that they would fluoresce in that spectrum as well i recently went to a sasquatch conference in spokane washington and while i was there i had the uh, the privilege of talking to Dr. Jeff Meldrum about this. And he told me that under, he had it on good authority that Sasquatch hair will fluoresce. So I found that rather interesting. Uh, there's pictures online of chimpanzees that will fluoresce green. So that's, that would be, probably around the same ballpark do we fluoresce at all not really no uh you'll you'll see a lot of your clothing lint on you <laughs> especially if you wear any kind of like high-vis clothing that sure pollutes i mean that's another factor if you're a researcher and you're going out at night uh that's another thing to consider is the clothing you're wearing if it fluoresces because you might be trying to hide, but you might be standing might, out like a lit up street sign. Sure. Absolutely. So that's just another consideration to take into this. Interesting. Uh, another, another is often when you get encounters where a Sasquatch comes up to a homestead, uh, you hear about house slapping. Yes. Right. If you take a black light and you go outside and you look at to where that hand slapped the wall, you'll see that handprint. Really? That will show that will show up in the UV. The oils of their hands will definitely fluoresce. That, that will happen with is that, that will happen with human handprint. Is that something you found out from uh Doug Highcheck? Because I know he was he was making a, a major efforts to I forget what the name of the uh, the oil that's left behind. Sebum. Sebum. I know he was making yeah. a major effort to um, collect and uh, catalog as many samples of that as he could. Yeah, potential DNA sources. Yeah. Is that is that who figured out that it does uh, fluoresce? Uh, I've figured out that the, the handprint would fluoresce just from looking at my own house <laughs> actually you see handprints everywhere yeah gotcha. but i mean if their if their hands are as oily as ours are i'm sure that would fluoresce interesting they seem to be extremely oily yes in a unique kind of way yeah And I wonder, I wonder that, that's a, that's a very strange thing because I, I wonder, I wonder why that is. Is that a protective layer? Is that something that helps them, uh, out the environment? Is that something that, uh, acts as a, um, you know, a sunscreen or, uh, part of, uh, you know, keeping them warm. Um, that's, it, uh, because man, when you do see prints that have been left behind, whether they're on a car window or the side of a car or the side of a, you know, a house, a window on a house. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, 
you don't get that much if you push your face up against a, a glass. Um, it's interesting stuff. I imagine it would probably be a bit of an insect repellent and sunscreen. You would imagine. Yeah. Um, another sense that they might have that we don't really consider is electromagnetism. Uh, your whole body produces its own bioelectrics, right? Uh, as your heart beats, you create your own aura of electricity around you right. that is measurable. Um, and animals are really in tune with bioelectrics of anything that's close to them. Um, I recently was watching a documentary and got put on the trail of a different type of camouflage. Yeah, it acts as a Faraday cage. That acts as a Faraday cage. Um, So it blocks your whole bioelectric signal. Um, You know, how many times have you heard someone say that they were watching a Sasquatch and then immediately the Sasquatch became aware of them, right? Um, I think that might have something to do with it. I mean, if you spend your whole life out in the bush, you're going to be so in tune with everything around you. Um, other animals, if they're using it, I don't see why they wouldn't as well. Right. So if you start wearing this camouflage with a Faraday cage built into it, you know, you're just masking yourself that much further, making it so much more difficult for you to be spotted. I mean, if I was a researcher out in the field at night, I'd definitely want that on. I got to imagine, I haven't checked prices on that, but I have to imagine that's some uh, significant cost to those. It's not the cheapest. (laughs) Probably one of my next big purchases. So that property that you hunted with your dad, have you had conversations with him about the things that have happened out there? Uh, My dad's not a believer in Sasquatch. Um, So he's, he hymns and haws about it a lot. Uh, He had a rather strange occurrence in that same cut block. Uh, He had shot a deer late in the season. There was snow on the ground. And he called my mom in a real big panic, which is unusual for my dad, that he was lost. And my dad's been hunting that cut block longer than I've been alive. And, you know, I just found it so unusual for him to say that he was lost. He was saying he was being stalked by a bear. And, you know, the snow's already on the ground, so most of the bears are going to be out hibernating. So it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, we talk about infrasound and the confusion and muddying that can do. Right. You know, maybe he just got too close and one wanted his deer, started confusing him with infrasound. But again, in that same spot. You know, it's funny that you, you bring that up and it's not funny that it happened to your dad, but, um, you know, the, the infrasound is, is something that I firmly believe I experienced. Um, 
and that's in episode five. If you want to hear it, go listen to it. It's a, it's a long story, but, um, and when it hit me, it was like a wave. It, it hit me and all the hair stood up on my, every inch of my body. And then it kind of dissipated a little bit and then it came back and it wasn't quite as strong. And then it dissipated and then it came back and it wasn't quite as strong. And it did that three, four, maybe five times. Each time it came back, it wasn't as strong. And then when it left and it came back again, it wasn't as strong. Um, <clears throat> it was an immediate fight or flight response. Um, shook me. Um, I thought I heard something really, really loud. My, I ripped my headphones off my head. It was, it was a loud, it was a loud percussive noise but my equipment picked up a very very slight little ooh in the background when it happened and it took me about a week and it dawned on it dawned on me that that's what people are talking about when they got zapped because I came, I came to that conclusion because that feeling as I kept going over it and trying to figure it out and what could have caused it and this and that and the other thing. And it was almost like a, um, a, a, a jolt of low voltage static electricity. And then it passed and then it came back, but it wasn't as strong. And when I started thinking of it from an electrical standpoint, that's when it dawned on me, oh, that's what people are talking about when they got zapped. Um, consequently, uh, Wednesday, just yesterday, um, during the congressional whistleblower, uh, hearings that were, were played out live on YouTube for the, uh, the UFO UAP whistleblowers during the congressional hearing, one of the one of the constituents had brought up talking about effects from, from people who have experienced UAPs, UFOs. I hate UAPs. Let's call them what they are. They're UFOs. They have been, that's been good enough since 1940s. <laughs> Let's keep calling them UFOs. Um, that people were experiencing similar effects to the Havana syndrome when coming in contact with these craft and the Havana syndrome, if you know anything about it is full on dedicated pinpoint weaponizing of infrasound. Right. Um, a lot of big animals use infrasound as long, long distance communication. I mean, elephants will use it to communicate with, their herds, if they're miles and miles away, let them lead them to water. Um, and, you know, tigers use it as a weapon to freeze their prey right before they jump on them. So, you know, it's not been known in a primate, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. Right. And I recently heard that, you know, you bring up the electromagnetism of the infrasound itself. 
you can use an EMF reader to actually pick up indications of infra and ultrasound. So, you know, your typical ghost hunting tool will work for you in the field looking for Sasquatch at night if you think you're getting hit with infrasound. It will show up on the meter. Right. See, and that's, that's, that's an interesting point you bring up, and, and I'm going to segue into, you know, I had Stacy Brown Jr. from uh, Florida on a couple of months ago, and we talked about, you know, his, his uh, the tools he uses to, to go out and look for these things now. And much of what he's doing is, is pushing the envelope into the paranormal aspects of uh, the type of research tools they're using. They're using EMF, they're using voice recorders, they're using, um, you know, at times even mind-altering drugs. But I had a conversation with uh, Archbishop Christina Rake out of Chicago. And, and it was a conversation of about how all this stuff is not so ununique to themselves. Um, when you talk about UFO experiencers, or you talk about people who have had experiences in haunted houses, or you talk about people who've had experiences out in the woods with a perceived to be Sasquatch. Uh, when you're in a haunted house, what do you hear? You hear knocking on the walls, right? What do people hear out in the woods when it comes to uh, Bigfoot? And thinking that it's communication, they hear tree knocks. And I don't know of anybody that's ever, <coughs> excuse me, I don't know of anybody that has ever seen or reported seen or captured on video or in photograph of a Sasquatch standing there with a very large piece of wood smacking it against a tree. What if that noise is a byproduct of them being within our perception. I mean, that's quite possible. I mean, you know, nothing, nothing's off the table until we prove it. You know, when you're in a haunted house and you hear knocks on the wall, is that a ghost knocking? Or is that a part of them coming into our perception? Is that an after effect of them entering our perceivable vision and uh, hearing, you know, orbs, light orbs, little lights in the, in the, in the woods. You see, you got, I, I literally had an orb manifest in front of me in a graveyard uh, doing a kind of a impromptu ghost investigation with my kids, say 10, 12 years Actually, ago. I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the orbs and I've got a theory with those as well. You know, when you describe an orb, you talk about it being a ball of light that doesn't really emit light around it too far. Right. Right. It's not. It's not a. It's not a source of light that's illuminating everything around it. It's just self-illuminated. Right. Um, that is very much the same way that UV light will will act. Oh, so. Really? When you turn on your UV flashlight, you don't see it light up the whole area. You only see it like directly in front of the beam. So Interesting. I have a theory that those orbs are also in the UV spectrum. I mean, I don't know if anyone's gotten close enough to an orb to see if it like illuminates the foliage around it. Mm -hmm. But then but, how it, then how would we be how would we as humans 
who cannot see in the UV spectrum, how would we be able to witness those as so many well, people do? It's, it's the, the same way as like when I turn on my flashlight. I okay, so you're, the, you're, you're saying they're not made of ultraviolet light. They are producing an ultraviolet light. Right. Okay. Right. I think they're producing it. That's interesting. So it would be just the same as like if I was walking around in the forest with my UV flashlight on. You can't see me, but you see my flashlight moving around. Right? Yeah. That's an interesting thought. It's uh, the only way I can really make sense of what an orb would be. The way it doesn't illuminate the surrounding area like a normal light would. Yeah, hearing uh, hearing Ron Moorhead talk about his experiences with the the lights in the Sierras was uh, was a very interesting um, getting to getting to see him talk about it live um, versus what I've heard that's been recorded. Um, there's a little bit more to it than what I've I've come across. Uh, you know, probably the oddest experience was he, he talks about like what looked like a, the blade of a lightsaber, basically, um, kind of just under, under some kind of intelligent control, but it was, you know, roughly three feet long and, you know, a couple inches in diameter and it just moved in between the trees and stayed at a level height and just kind of guided its way through, uh, through the trees around them. But they also talked about the, the lights off in the distance. Right. So even uh, Bob Gimlin, he told a story about when he was in the Okanagan Valley here in my province, just north of me, uh, just horseback riding along the lakeside, and he saw the orbs there as well. Um, but yeah, that's not something you hear about because everybody wants to talk about the paddy film. Yeah, but you know. When he, when he tells a story about horseback riding in my local area, I kind of just took that one to heart. Yeah. Well, interesting stuff, man. Um, have you, have you garnered any additional interest in, in what you've been looking into? I mean, do you have people that are kind of wanting to jump on the bandwagon with you and, uh, try to look at this stuff in a little more, uh, scientific light? I have, yes. Um, I recently did another interview with the Nicola Valley Bigfoot podcast, a local Sasquatch podcast to me. Um, And since then, I've already had researchers contact me and ask for additional information, uh, wanting to get out in the field together. Um, I've also been reached out by other podcasts as well. Uh, to do other interviews. So, I mean, it's a budding science and it's fairly new and undeveloped and not really put into place with Sasquatch research. So I think it's an invaluable asset to at least try. I mean, if it doesn't pan out, it doesn't pan out. But I think the possibilities are significant. Yeah, I, you know, I encourage I encourage anybody who is thinking outside the envelope to to see where it goes. You know, if you run into dead end after dead end after dead end, then yeah, maybe maybe it was maybe it was a bad idea. Maybe it uh, maybe it didn't pan out. But um, 
you know, just like uh, Stacy Brown with using some of the paranormal uh, tools that that most ghost adventure or ghost uh, um, investigators use uh, in in the interest of trying to help find Sasquatch. Why not? I mean, if if you garner some results from it, then that's just another piece of the puzzle. That well, sure, you know. Um, I think when we do Sasquatch research, so often we're focused on just that missing piece of the puzzle. And we don't pay attention to the rest of the pieces in the box. So I agree. We, and I think, I think the issue with that is I think some of the, the great voices, some of the most, the loudest voices in the, in the Sasquatch um, arena, as far as being looked at as a, I won't call him an expert, but as a an educated, um, you know, like Jeff Meldrum, like Cliff Berrickman, uh, and there's others. But they all, and I've talked about this before, they all lean on the crutch of science. There's things that they will not discuss because it has no basis or they have no way to um, cross-reference cross it to something that is solidly in science, you know, like any of the, any of the aspects of the, the woo, um, you know, they, they won't, they won't entertain it. You talk to them personally off air and, and they'll talk to you about it and they're, you know, it's like, yeah, it's weird. And there's a lot of people that talk about it. So it's gotta be something to it, but we can't, we can't bring it up and have any kind of a formal edu- or a formal conversation about it because we have no idea what it is or how it's happening. So, you know, they stick to the things that they know. That's something's leaving footprints in the woods. You know, we can, we can find that footprint. We can cast it. We can take 3D models of it. We can look at the, the anatomical structure of it. We can tell how the foot bends. We can tell that, that it needs to be that size and it needs to bend where it does because of the weight and the size of these things. You know, and that's all well and good, but... We, we get it's the same thing over and over and over again you can go to a bigfoot conference on the west coast smack dab here in the midwest you can go one out on the east coast and the conversation is the same because there are not that many people who are pushing the envelope and looking at other aspects to these things and unfortunately when they do and they try to air their ideas a lot of times they're shut down because there's Nobody that wants to side with them to show that there is a basis in science for it. So, right, um, yeah, I think uh, the natural studies of this UV um, actually being studied by significant scientists, putting out university studies. There is the scientific background for this UV. Um, I think if you can understand Sasquatch's environment as well as it does, you'll start to understand behavior and tendencies maybe, uh, or even cultural significance. Like maybe there's something that fluoresces on these teepee structures. I, I don't know, but. Well, wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't that be nuts if you went out and you found a, you found a, a structure and hit it with UV light and all of a sudden there was this like really obvious glyph that was, you know, something that would just jump out at you. 
That would be crazy. Well, I, I think even some of this stuff, like when you say glyphs, it, uh, you know, the UV thing applies to, you know, even archaeology. Um, there's artifacts from a long, long time ago coming out of uh, Tula Hidalgo, Mexico, that when you hit them with the UV right, uh, light, writing pops up that you don't see. Really? It's fantastic. Um, these artifacts are a little bit controversial. Uh, the Mexican antiquities minister won't acknowledge them as being real um, because they depict not only great aliens, but also Egyptian and Sumerian motif. So this is King Montezuma's kingdom, and they're digging up these artifacts all the time. And out of that specific region in Tula Hidalgo, um, the artifacts will fluoresce and phosphoresce. So like you were saying earlier, when you take the light away, they stay glowed for a few seconds. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even that, like adding UV to archaeological studies could be very significant in the new findings that we never even imagined. Wow. That's very interesting. Very, very interesting. What else you got for us? Um, well, uh, I've got some other experiences in life. I've seen a UFO uh, since we talked about the UAP commission. Um, that was a good 15-minute sighting. Really? Uh, yeah. I was... Uh, out on a back deck watching a meteor shower in August and I was out there with an ex-girlfriend and my little brother and I saw what looked to be a satellite going across the sky so I pointed it out and I'm like, oh yeah there's a satellite you know this is like back in 2009 when we didn't have as many up there um, and as we're watching it another one starts coming from the opposite direction and it almost looked like there was a collide uh and as we're watching it the first one hung a ue and started following the other one uh like, whoa satellites don't switch directions <laughs> other satellites and at that moment they both stopped and they dropped in the atmosphere so they came really low in the sky and it, it looked like an, an upside-down triangle, so you got the two points up top and the one point down below, of these colored lights that would shift colors almost like a mood light, so, you know, just kind of drifting from one color to the next in a clockwise fashion. And they would dart from horizon to horizon, mountaintop to mountaintop, back forth, back forth, back forth, stop, do a blinking display and then the second one kind of went away from me at an angle and just disappeared in the high orbit just like got smaller 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 and then blip, gone were you able to get any v- video of that or i tried uh at the time my phone was i think the chocolate flip 
And that was like trying to film with a potato. <laughs> I've never heard of a chocolate flip. That must be uh, that must be a Canadian terminology. Uh, it was like one of the LG flip phones back in the day. Yeah. Um, so but, the the orientation to the Earth, the um, the triangular shape, the way you were describing it, makes it sounds like the orientation was not that it was uh, on a level plane, but the the lower point was pointed towards the earth and the other two went up? Well, I actually did see the craft much closer than that. So that triangular display was just on the side of the ship. Um, after that first one disappeared, the second, or the, the first one stuck around, second one disappeared, uh, it did the light display some a few more times, just doing this aerial dance in the sky, back forth, back forth. It uh, this is, is going to sound weird, but uh, it displayed a color that does not exist as of yet. I, I don't know how to describe it because how do you describe a color that doesn't exist? Uh, and after I did this, it was like the first ship and it went high atmosphere and went smaller, 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 and then disappeared, but then almost immediately came right back and it went right into a very low atmosphere cloud that was sitting right above town. And when it was in the cloud, you could see the the full size of the ship. It was like a single level rancher house, but it was a, it was a saucer. Oh, but, uh, yeah. Are you guys having, uh, are you guys having an extraordinary amount of sightings up in Canada? And the reason I ask is because, uh, a, a guy that I really have enjoyed his, uh, his content, Justin Cherpinski, um, from Mountain Beast Mysteries out of Canada. Um, you know, he's been doing this for, I've probably been watching him for at least two, two and a half years. I think he was doing it for longer than that. Um, <clears throat> he'd put out these shorts about him being out in the woods of Canada looking for Bigfoot. And uh, it, was, it was always a very good, um, he never found much. You know, it was just him out there doing everything he could to try to find some evidence or, or you know, eventually run into one, I guess. Um, and then all of a sudden, about uh, six months ago, his his he just kind of flipped and he's, I, I think he moved to a new uh, apartment building and started spending a lot of time out on his balcony and looking up at the sky and he's been getting the just insane amounts of video of these bizarre things going on in the skies above Canada. Wow. Uh, do you know what region of Canada? I want to say Quebec, but I can't tell okay. you for sure. Um, I know he mentions it in his uh, one of his latest videos. Um, I know he mentions where he's at. Um I'm not familiar with Canada at all, to be honest. So um, I don't know what the major cities are. Uh, maybe something around Edmonton. Uh, Edmonton's in Alberta. 
Alberta. Okay. I know. Yeah. I know. At least in his earlier, in his earlier videos, I know he was living in Alberta. He may have moved though. It, it's worth checking out. It's Mountain Beast Mysteries is the name of the YouTube channel, and it would be. I mean, he's got these things that are darting around the sky. He's got them that are going into clouds, like what you mentioned. And when they are in the clouds, um, the the light patterns that show up inside the clouds are different from what the the object actually looked like when it was outside of the cloud. So really, I mean, kind of very similar to what you're ex explaining here. So Very significantly different. Um, I had a bit more corroboration on that sighting. Uh, Last year, I was sitting in a cut block, just bored hunting, and I came across this website called mapsquatch.com, and it's kind of like a sighting report website that uh, tracks all kinds of things, Sasquatch sightings, UFO encounters, ghost sightings, dogman, um, all kinds of things. So I went over my town, and I just want, was curious to see what other people were seeing. And as I scroll down through the list, it's about eight or nine different UFO encounters. And uh, I come across one from that same night of people that saw the initial five minutes with the first two crafts when they were dancing together. Yeah. They, they saw the same thing. And then after the second one went and disappeared, they lost sight of the other one and didn't see the additional 10 minutes. But, you know, it was just nice to have separate corroboration from yeah. a different point of view in town, right. seeing the same thing. What, what's, what's the, um, what is the perception up where you're at as far as the existence of Bigfoot? Is it, you know, like here in the States, there seems to be, you know, a lot of people who are really into it and believe it, but there are a ton of people that are just like, you're nuts, man. You know, they want to roll their eyes at you and, and, and make fun of you. Um, is it the same up there? And, you know, with, with the recent, over the past couple of years, with the slow disclosure that we're having about the UFOs and everything, um, you know, there's still people that are just like, nah, this is this is crazy, this is nuts. But it's like they're they're actually talking about this in an official capacity now. You know, I mean, um, you know. Well, British Columbia is you know world famous for Sasquatch sightings already. Right. Um, you know, out in Harrison Hot Springs, we have a world-renowned Bigfoot festival that happens there. There's even a Sasquatch provincial park where the whole area is named after Sasquatch. Really? And there's huge statues everywhere. That's more towards the coast. Um, but as long as you're not in like a major city, Sasquatch is pretty well received. If you're talking to someone that lives in the city, not so much. <laughs> so there's still a big separation there. There is still a big separation, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of tough. I mean, like I said, I've not, I, I was in Windsor uh, at one point in the early 90s. We, we crossed over to, to go to one of the uh, uh, casinos, but that's been the extent of, you know, but when you, look at a, when you look at a map or you look at Google Earth, 
you know, when you start getting into the British Columbia area and that, I mean, there's a lot of green, there's a lot of area that doesn't have cities. Um, you know, so I would, I would think that, that it would be a pervasive thought that these things, it's not a myth. Uh, some places it's, if you talk about Sasquatch, it's like, why are you bringing that up? Everyone already knows about it. Um, really that matter of fact, huh? Oh yeah. So some of the small towns, they, they have activity so often that they just scoff at you. If you try to bring it up, like you're talking about the coyote you just saw in the farmyard. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, it's a significant part of British Columbia. Um, I don't understand why this is not a recognized species yet because of all this. I mean, with all the evidence that everyone's already brought forward and, you know, how many witness testimonies, you know, if only 1% of that is true, that's enough. If If only one of them is true, it's enough. Right. Um, and, you know, that's enough to have an open and shut case on a murder uh, trial, right? Right. So I don't see why they're not recognizing Sasquatch as being a legitimate species. Um, what, what, are your, listen- what are your thoughts on why, why the, the, the huge pushback that they don't exist? What do you... If they do, if they do come out and say, "Yes, Sasquatch exists," what what do you see? What's the harm in it? What what happens to us? What happens to industry? What happens to camping? What happens to uh, forestry? What happens to uh, any number of things that would be associated with um, ev- and ending up having to provide a, a a space for these people, these things, people? I think there are people. Uh, to to live out their lives uninterrupted by us. Uh, I think it probably has something to do with how human they are. Um, they come across as very human, and often in descriptions, the face is incredibly human. I mean, you do get the cases where they look a lot more like a gorilla or a chimpanzee, mm-hmm. but... I mean, the morphology of their foot and their hand is very similar to us. There is slight differences to allow for different adaptation. So they're not full human, but they're very human-like. You know, if we took away all our technology and we lived out in the forest just the same as them, we would probably look similar and have similar abilities to them. You know, I think we've relied on technology for eons, and it's dulled our senses to the point where we, we don't perceive stuff like UV light, and we don't pick up on electromagnetism like other animals and plants do. You know, if we took all of that away and we're living like cavemen, mm-hmm. we would probably be very much the same. Oh, I agree with you 100%. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're 
people argue that we have evolved into a higher species. I think we have de-evolved into something that is considerably less than the attributes that we had, say, 10, 12, 14, 15,000 years ago. I think back in those days uh, when we were sleeping around a, a fire ring and having to sleep with one eye open to make sure that a predator uh, that's coming out of the wood line doesn't come and get our, our, uh, our females or our, or our offspring or our food. Um, I think, you know, when, when people talk about having a sixth sense, you know, I think, I think those things were probably much more prevalent back then. I think we had our sixth sense. I think we had uh, much more acute intuitions. Um, I think our gut probably served us a lot better. Hey, this doesn't feel right. We need to get out of here. Um, you know, you, you didn't have the, you weren't afforded the opportunity to ignore those kind of signs. And, right. you know, you start putting walls up around you and start putting windows in and you put doors that lock and windows that you can shut and a roof over your head so you don't have to worry about the rain and, you know, brick walls so you don't have to worry about forest fires and all kinds of stuff like that. It, it eliminates the need for your body to constantly be aware, situationally aware. You know, we're just perfectly oblivious you know, as long as our alarm goes off in the morning and there's coffee brewing, <laughs> you know, before we get in the car to drive to work, you know, that's that's all we're really worried about. Um, you know, I mean, that's not to say in some areas that, you know, there's higher crime rates and stuff like that and people have to worry about getting their houses broken into. That's not what I'm getting at. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I think, uh, I think we were probably much... Uh, much more in lines with natural creatures. Well, sure. If, we, if uh, you know, we were made on this earth to be part of earth, you'd think we would blend in with everything else. But if you look at us right now, we're the odd one out. We, we don't <laughs> pick up on... We are the we one thing. On a lot of things. We are the one and, thing does not look like it belongs here. But I mean, like, I, I think at one point in time, we did have these abilities and it, it was natural. And then we just kind of adapted out of it because of our comfort level. Um, we opted for tools and fire. And, you know, w once you have a firelight going every nighttime in your house, you have no need for the night vision. Yeah. So, you know, there goes your UV, there goes maybe infrared. Um, so as other animals use that all the time, you know, we, we grew out of it. Now we need tools to see the same thing and relearn what was probably well known in the past. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Charles, it's been a great conversation with you, man. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Very interesting stuff. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be some people that listen to this, uh, whether they be weekend warriors or uh, something a little more akin to a researcher who may be interested in getting a hold of you. How would they do that? Probably through your Instagram? Yeah, Instagram would probably be the easiest way to do it. And so that again is Chucky underscore danger and should pop up and 
Yeah, I got lots of examples of different uh, photos of plants and rocks and animals that I've posted that I've took off the internet, uh, book resources, uh, documentaries that I can help point you in the right direction. All right, Chucky underscore danger. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>